everyone, and welcome back to my book review podcast. This is season two of Unknown Friends, and you're listening to episode 13 today. I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson, reader, writer, and manager of Kitty Wayne Productions, my publishing company of original Christian play scripts and skits, which you can learn more about at kittywayneproductions.com, linked in the episode description. Thank you so much for tuning in today, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, and if you enjoy this episode, leave a quick review and a star rating. Thank you so much. Now, those of you who are Unknown Friends veterans may know that we are approaching our first anniversary of the podcast. Uh, Unknown Friends launched way back in April 2020, and our first official episode came out on Wednesday, April 15th. I discussed C.S. Lewis's Till We Have Faces for our inaugural book review, so the podcast's birthday is just over a week away. Now, ironically and unfortunately, I am not going to be able to release a book review episode next week. Those of you who are Unknown Friends patrons and have listened to my bonus Patreon episode previewing the month of April will already know, but for those of you who don't know, I am traveling all next week. I'm going to be at a convention in Tennessee, and so I have to take the week off from the podcast. I am really sorry, and I will miss hosting an episode next Wednesday, but I know you guys will understand and forgive me, so thank you in advance for that. But enough about next week. Let's talk about today's book review, Elizabeth Gaskell's wonderful novel, North and South. This is a book I have been meaning to read for like six or eight years, and I have been foolishly slow to get around to it uh, because it's fantastic. You know I raved about Gaskell's novel Wives and Daughters last year in episode 13 of season one, and now here we are in episode 13 of season two. Believe it or not, that parallel was not actually planned. Um, But I finally read North and South, and I want everyone else to read it too. Uh, You know, people who knew I liked Jane Austen and Charles Dickens always told me to read Elizabeth Gaskell and said I would love her work too. And I guess I never quite believed them. I think maybe I love Dickens and Austen so much that I felt anything compared to them, no matter how good, would necessarily be a disappointment. Uh, But honestly, I have not been disappointed in Elizabeth Gaskell. She has most definitely exceeded my expectations. And after reading two of her novels, I am quite ready to read just about anything else she ever wrote. Uh, of course, let me just say, she she is not a perfect writer. Who is? She has her little stylistic flaws and oddities, but so does someone like Dickens. Um, and we'll talk today about imperfections in her novel North and South, along with its merits. But before we get into the novel itself, let's just briefly review Gaskell's life. We covered her basic biography last year when we discussed Wives and Daughters, so I won't go into too much detail, Um, but I know that was a long time ago, and so I will just review the highlights of her life. She was born in 1810 in London, the eighth child of William and Elizabeth Stevenson, Uh, But only she and one older brother, John, survived infancy. 
And Elizabeth's mother also died when she was just over a year old. And so her father felt that he had to send his daughter to live with her aunt, her mother's sister. And she did. Her father was supportive of her and of her education. And she loved him dearly. But she did go several years without even being able to see him while she lived with her aunt. Her brother John, though, came to see her often, and they shared a close bond. He joined the Navy, and they wrote letters while he was overseas. But tragically, in 1827, John was lost on a voyage to India. He went missing, and that added one more name to the list of family members Elizabeth had already lost before she was 18. Um, anyway, after she finished her education, Elizabeth traveled a bit around England, living with her aunts or grandparents or various cousins, until in 1832, shortly before her 22nd birthday, she married a Unitarian minister, William Gaskell, and the couple settled in Manchester, where William had already been for about four years, serving as a minister at a Unitarian chapel. Uh, and William Gaskell is an interesting figure himself. He preached, he taught, he was a fervent advocate for humanitarian causes, and he personally worked very hard to educate and improve the lives of the poor in Manchester, uh, where he lived and worked all his adult life from 1828 to his death in 84. Uh, he was really a, a prominent figure in Manchester, and in Unitarian circles in general, and was considered an exceptional preacher and lecturer. Um, anyway, but back to Elizabeth, who obviously was also Unitarian. Like William, Elizabeth's father had also been a Unitarian minister who had eventually resigned for some reason on conscientious grounds. But Elizabeth, she and her husband lived and worked in the industrial town of Manchester, and in time, they had four surviving children. Uh, their first daughter was stillborn, and their only son died in infancy. But four girls survived. Um, after the death of her young son, Elizabeth was struggling, and William encouraged her to write as a way to help her cope with the loss. And that's when Elizabeth's literary career launched. Her first novel was titled Mary Barton and published anonymously in 1848 when Elizabeth was 38 years old, and it was an enormous success. Um, over the years then, until her unexpected death in 1865 from a heart attack, she went on to write several more novels, as well as novellas and short stories and poetry, and some nonfiction as well, including a biography of her friend Charlotte Bronte. Um, and speaking of friends, the social circle that the Gaskells moved in comprised quite a few famous writers and other figures. Uh, their friends ranged from people like Charles Dickens to uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe. Dickens, in fact, published some of Elizabeth's writings in his magazine Household Words, and actually, North and South itself was published this way. So, so let's focus in now on this novel in particular. First, how did North and South come into being? Dickens published North and South serially from late 1854 to early 55. Um, the title was Dickens's Choice, 
Elizabeth Gaskell wanted to call it after the main character, Margaret Hale, like she had done with her first novel, Mary Barton, but Dickens insisted on North and South as being sort of uh, broader and more uh, theme-focused, I guess. Anyway, Dickens apparently was not very satisfied with North and South in the end. He said it was wearisome and felt that Gaskell could not write concisely enough, which I have to say is kind of amusing coming from Charles Dickens. But anyway, after the story was published serially, Gaskell then took it and edited it as she wished and added some material, and it was then published in book form in 1855 and republished quite a few more times during Gaskell's lifetime. She had understandably felt restricted by the magazine publishing format, and she hadn't really been satisfied with the story either in that form. So she was very glad to have the opportunity to rewrite and expand portions to shape the story more as she really wanted. And the second edition, the version published in book form, is what we have today. And it's hard to imagine the story without some of the portions Gaskell added. So how about the plot and characters of North and South? What is this book all about? Our heroine, as I mentioned, is a Miss Margaret Hale, just 18 at the start of the story, but in her early 20s by the end. Margaret has spent her teen years being brought up in London with her aunt and cousin, while her mother and father live in the countryside where her father is a vicar at a village called Helston. Uh, but Margaret's cousin Edith has now grown up and is getting married, and she and her family will be traveling. So Margaret returns after all these years to Helston to live with her parents again. Margaret has one elder brother, uh, I think we get a little of Elizabeth Gaskell's own life here. Um, but her brother, Frederick, who was in the Navy, has been unable to return to England for several years because he was involved in a mutiny against an officer that was that was cruel to his men. Um, but despite the officer's character, any of the surviving mutineers, uh, regardless of how just their cause might have been, will face the penalty of death if they set foot on English soil. So Frederick is a fugitive living in Europe, and he can have very little communication with his family, and so of course they miss him terribly. Um, so at this point, Margaret is virtually an only child. Now, a little while after she moves back in with her parents, Mr. Hale, her father, discloses that um, developing in his mind for some time now has been a certain matter of conscience that he feels prevents him from remaining a minister in the Church of England. He has become a dissenter and must relinquish his parish and position and must start over, despite his age, with some other profession in some other place. Uh, we never really learn the nature of his religious dissent. He assures his family that he still believes in God, his faith is still strong, but there seems to be either some point of doctrine in which he disagrees with the church's stance, um, or even just some kind of church protocol or, or demand that he feels is unjust and he can't conscientiously affirm it. Anyway, whatever the case may be, Mr. and Mrs. Hale and Margaret move north to the industrial town of Milton, 
which is fictional but seems to be based on Manchester, where Elizabeth Gaskell and her husband lived. And in Milton, Mr. Hale works as a private tutor. And one of his first and best students is a grown man, Mr. John Thornton, who is a wealthy mill owner, but he was not born into a life of luxury. He earned it. He worked his way up the ranks from very poor origins. And because he was working as a child, he never received the level of education in, for instance, Latin and Greek that most respectable young men would have received in that day. So this is why now, even though he's an adult, he comes to Mr. Hale to learn and to read and discuss ancient literature and and philosophy and things. Uh, So Mr. Hale and Mr. Thornton get along quite well. And Margaret doesn't mind Mr. Thornton, but also isn't crazy about him. Um, he is he is a mill owner, as I said, and in this mill town, this place of, of industry and bustle and practicality, Margaret is not at ease. It's so different from the countryside that she's used to and loves, uh, where tranquility reigns, and Margaret is uncomfortable with the restless pace of life, the dog-eat-dog kind of mindset that she finds here in Milton, where most everyone works in factories rather than on farms like in the South. Um, And besides becoming acquainted with Mr. Thornton, the factory owner, Margaret also makes friends with a very poor family, the Higginses, who are factory workers. And so over time, she sort of learns both sides of Milton life, the perspective of the mill masters and that of the laborers. And the balance between the two, the the relationship between masters and workers, is quite tenuous. Um, it's, It's symbiotic, mutually dependent, right? But neither side really understands the other. At least Margaret comes to this conclusion. The masters see the workers as numbers, Uh, figures to be calculated. And similarly, the workers see the mill owners as just impersonal sources of income and of regulations, but they don't understand how and why the masters uh, run their factories the way they do. So there is a major lack of communication on both sides, and reconciling the two is not going to be easy. But this is one of the big issues Gaskell is tackling in North and South, the big social issue. Um, At one point in the story, a strike breaks out and the laborers refuse to work without more pay, Uh, but that fails and ultimately leads to violence and only causes more problems for both the workers and the factory owners. Um, So the tension is not a simple one to solve. Um, And Gaskell does not try to say, uh, well, you know, factories should be Charity institutions and and businessmen should pay their employees more than they're worth. But neither does she encourage employers to view their workers as cogs in a machine. She really does present a nuanced view of the whole situation of industrial labor and and what constitutes fair wages and all this. Um, And ultimately, she doesn't offer a clear, easy solution to the problems of the system. Um, But what she does conclude is that on both sides of the system, human beings are involved, and understanding that and communicating with each other is vital. 
Uh, anyway, I'm not really moving in a straight line here with describing the plot. I guess I'm I'm taking the scenic route. Sorry. Uh, so Margaret gets to know the people of Milton, high and low. She isn't super impressed with the Thorntons, uh, but she helps the poor Higgins family, especially one girl, Bessie, who is fatally ill. Well, uh, when the strike breaks out among the mill workers, stuff happens, and she happens to be with the Thornton family when an angry mob of laborers approaches their house, threateningly, and in the process, Margaret gets mildly injured while defending the Thorntons against the mob. And while the long and short of it is, John Thornton, over the course of the story so far, has fallen in love with Margaret. And he is led to believe, when she puts herself between him and the strikers, that she loves him back. Well, she doesn't. <laughs> he proposes, she proudly turns him down. He declares he'll never stop loving her, and she declares she'll never love him, and all that. Uh, and they go their separate ways. Now, about this time, Margaret's mother is ill. Her health is failing, and her one wish is to see her son Frederick again before she dies. Well, I won't go into all the details, but they work it out so that Frederick secretly sneaks into England and visits his family briefly, but it all has to be totally undercover because he will be court-martialed if he's found. So he comes in secret and leaves in secret, but Mr. Thornton happens to see Frederick and Margaret talking together one evening, and not knowing anything about her having a brother, he assumes, with fairly good reason, that this must be some young man Margaret is interested in, romantically, um, and maybe is even meeting improperly in secret. Well, you can imagine some of the things that could then ensue. Misunderstanding, miscommunication, and... Margaret eventually realizes what Mr. Thornton must think of her, but she can't clear up the situation for fear of putting her brother at risk if she reveals the truth. It's a pretty little mess. But if I keep going, I will spoil how things get resolved and how the story ends. So I think I will just have to leave the characters in their pickle, and you just have to read the novel for yourself to learn how Margaret and Mr. Thornton solve their differences and misconceptions. You know they get together in the end, right? This is this is Victorian literature, published by Charles Dickens. The hero and heroine must marry in the end, but what interests us is how that happens. And that's what you must discover on your own. So, um, I realize I didn't leave myself too much time to discuss the book's overall uh, tone and themes, but a few things I must touch on as quickly as I can. So North and South is often compared to Pride and Prejudice. When I first heard about the story, I was told it was uh, like a remake of Pride and Prejudice, an industrial Pride and Prejudice. Well, when I finally decided to read North and South, I went in determined not to judge the book that way. Uh, in fact, pretty determined to disprove the whole theory that North and South is a ripoff of Pride and Prejudice. And for a while, as I was reading, I felt like I was succeeding in that goal. Uh, to myself, uh, I was like, you know, see, this is different and, and that's different. I would notice various things. These characters are unique. Yeah, this is, this is not 
Pride and Prejudice 2.0. And I kept reading. And then after a while, I was like, actually, yeah, it kind of is. <laughs> um, but but no, it it is and it isn't like Pride and Prejudice. Yes, there are definite storyline similarities and even some character and theme similarities. And Gaskell said that Austen influenced her writing, which I think she should be proud of. Um, but there really are a lot of differences, essential differences. The whole tone of each story is different. Pride and Prejudice is more comic, more satirical, whereas North and South is, is more earnest and even a bit melodramatic at times. Yes, the the very big picture plotline is similar. A uh, gentleman's daughter is brought into contact with wealthy, proud, independent young man who falls for her, asks for her hand, but she refuses, offended, until over time she recognizes his merit and her own pride. Uh, they both mellow a bit, chastened by each other. He helps her out in a specific but secret way. She then feels indebted to him and regrets losing his good opinion. And finally, thanks to various circumstances, they are thrown together again, realize they have both changed. He proposes a second time and she accepts. Okay, so everything I just described applies to both Pride and Prejudice and North and South. But can I just say, almost everything I just described also applies to like probably a good 50% of all romances ever written. Uh, Pride and Prejudice really helped shape the modern romance story tradition, which is incredibly ironic given the fact that it itself is not primarily a romance, but a comedy, social satire. But anyway, just the whole uh, guy and girl who hate each other but then fall in love thing, specifically with the guy falling first and the girl holding out is a major trope anymore. And Pride and Prejudice, uh, even if it didn't invent it, did help establish it. So is North and South a remake of Pride and Prejudice? I don't think that's fair to say if you mean it in a derogatory way, because Gaskell brings a lot of her own material to the story. But I do think it's fair if you mean that Pride and Prejudice, or more broadly Jane Austen, established many of the patterns that we then see flourishing throughout Victorian literature um, and present still in contemporary literature. Anyway, but the differences. So Jane Austen's style is incredibly clean. It is nuanced, but it's concise and cutting. Gaskell can be a little melodramatic, um, and she allows her characters to be multidimensional, changeable, even self-contradictory, as real human beings are. Um, of course, Austen characters are very realistic too, but in a different kind of way. Um, things are just a little more clear-cut in Austen stories than in Gaskell's. Now, the drama in Elizabeth Gaskell's writing, at least in North and South, I'll limit myself to that, does sometimes make me chuckle a little. Um, especially, I think, when she gets into the heads of her male characters. That's something that Austen pretty rarely does. Occasionally, she'll allow us a glimpse into the hero's thoughts, but she's pretty strict with herself to stick with the heroine's thoughts only. 
Um, Gaskell, however, moves quite freely and quite deeply into John Thornton's head. And I do uh, wonder how realistic that portrayal sometimes is. Um, what I mean is that it's it's certainly more in the romantic tradition than Austen is. So Thornton is, you know, uh, bewitched by Margaret's beauty, and he's just passionately in love with her and, like, worships the ground she walks on or whatever. I mean, the book doesn't quite say that, but it just seems a little dramatic in a way that, I don't know, maybe some guys are, but maybe some guys aren't. Um, Whatever. I just, especially in the first half or so of the book, I was rolling my eyes a little at how much the narration uh, you know, keeps mentioning how beautiful Margaret is and just how overcome Mr. Thornton is by all her charms. I guess I just didn't buy it. It felt a little contrived. It felt like a story and not like real life. But I say all that, I experienced all that in reading, but in the end, I really genuinely liked the story. It won me over because it allowed the characters to grow up a bit. Um, I'm not saying the story totally outgrew its early emphasis on romance, but the characters both matured markedly, and they got to the place where they were okay without each other. I felt like that was very important, and I really appreciated that Gaskell gave both Margaret and John time to get past uh, the early stages of their love-hate relationship and come to a more accurate understanding of themselves and of each other. Um, And specifically, Gaskell shaped the story so that once both of them separately had come to love and respect the other but didn't think the other one was interested in them, they both worked through that, and ultimately found their own separate places in life where they were called to serve others, and they rested there. Uh, was it easy? No. They, they wanted to be together, but even with that longing unfulfilled, they both carried on with their lives and found a sense of peace despite not having everything they felt like having. And for both Margaret and John, with their specific character flaws early in the story, humility was the main key for them to find peace in their places in life. They both needed humility in order to see themselves for what they truly were, and as a result, to then be able to see each other accurately. Um, And they needed humility to engage with life the way they should. I, I don't have time to trace the whole theme of humility as Gaskell explores it in the story, but I do think that is one of, perhaps the, core theme of North and South. Uh, Humility, and with it, contentment, uh, pity for others and graciousness to them, and uh, peace of mind in doing one's own duty. So, in short, Yes, I I chuckle occasionally reading the more dramatic, romantic parts of North and South, but once you get to the end of the novel, if you have paid close attention to the character growth that has occurred in both Margaret and John, there is something deep and true that Gaskell is depicting here. And I appreciate that she designed the novel so that her hero and heroine wait a long time before they reconcile, 
because they need that time to mature, to, to come to a true understanding of each other and themselves and to find contentment in their separate places in life. So thank you, Elizabeth Gaskell, for writing North and South the way you did and for teaching us through this story about humility and how good relationships work. So I recommend this novel. If you can't tell, it is, it's very hard for me to choose a favorite between North and South and Wives and Daughters. They're both so good. Um, so just read both of them. They do very different things, but they're both excellent and, and well worth reading. That's a wrap for today. Thank you so much for listening. And if you want to partner with me in creating this podcast, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash unknown friends, which you'll find linked in the episode description. Next week, as I mentioned, I have to take the week off since I'll be traveling. But the week after on April 21st, I will be returning with a review of Marcus Zusak's novel, The Book Thief, published in 2005. This is an intriguing, very creative book set during World War II, and I'm so excited to discuss it in our 14th episode of Season 2 in two weeks. As always, I'm your host, Rochelle Ferguson of Kitty Wan Productions, and you can learn more about me and my writing through my website, kittywanproductions.com. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see you in two weeks.